0: Got
1: something on the room. We're letting you get them. This is a tender subject. He's the You understand that this is considered cannibalism. Thank you the sustenance we receive.
0: Welcome to Tender Subject, the podcast that wants to put your tongue in a stew. I'm Kate. <laughs> my pronouns are she, her, or they, them. And I'm a visual artist in Philadelphia.
2: I'm Jay. My pronouns are he, him. And I am a music librarian in Boston. And we have another guest. Yay! Yay, guest. From I inside don't have a soundboard. The <laughs> yeah, the guest is in the stew.
0: Um,
2: <laughs> I don't have a soundboard. Woo! Uh,
1: guest, uh, please introduce yourself. Hi, my name is Kyle, and I'm a guy um who does stuff and you can find me at labor kyle on said stuff um and i'm very pleased to be here again yeah reporting from the bottom of the stew um (laughs) your wonderful (laughs) listeners don't get to hear about the journey of audio errors that have been happening on my end so i appreciate their um uh kind spirit uh which is all i would expect from the listeners of the cannibalism podcast
0: oh yeah it's Cannibals just a bunch of the best people.
2: perverts you've ever met, you know. Yeah.
0: Well we needed a first person account from within the stew. So yeah. we're really happy to have you. <laughs> yeah. Um and we are talking about Blood Feast today. And being, um, yes. And many other things. Egyptomania, all sorts of yeah. stuff. Um, but through the through the text of Blood Feast, the Herschel Gordon-Lewis film from 1968. Um, that We is,
2: might have... Th- oh, sorry. Go ahead, Kate. <laughs> it's one
0: hour and seven minutes long. So everyone go watch it right now. <laughs> yeah, we'll wait. Because we'll we wait. haven't
2: had like the H- Herschel Gordon-Lewis expert here on our podcast. The preeminent. From, yeah, from, this, from the stew.
0: Yeah. So, um, Kyle, you suggested this um, movie to us. Will you tell us like a little bit about why you love it so much?
1: Yeah. um, So I'm a big fan. I'm in the sort of podcast sphere that we all come from. I'm I'm known as a big fan of Herschel Gordon Lewis's work for a whole bunch of reasons that we'll surely get into. Um, Blood Feast is this really like it's a movie that I feel like at this point it's more talked about. In the realms of like sort of film nerds than it is actually watched, and I feel like Herschel Gordon Lewis is an extremely important filmmaker, and I, all of those same people would agree, I think, who have are interested from this sort of co- more contemporary perspective revisiting his work. He died in 2016 at the age of 90. So be a sleazy advertiser slash pornographer um and you'll live a long, healthy life, I think is the um is the moral of the story. I'll um, say that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I kind I got into Lewis's work as an undergraduate. Um and what really drew me to him was not just the sort of he's a schlocky exploitation filmmaker who makes movies on a shoestring budget and does it explicitly as he has been said over and over and over again that he does it explicitly so he can make money. Um he is known for I mean it's technically debatable, but really he's the most well-known um originator of what we could call the splatter genre. Um I've been a fan of I, I got into splatter movies through Evil Dead 2 and I saw Evil Dead 2 and I watched it probably ten times in a week when I was in high school and I considered myself a splat fan from then on out, um, I love comedy, and I love horror, and so the sort of mixture of the two I've always found to be extremely compelling, but like HGL is I think even more sort of like important for the type of filmmaker that he is who came up, um, again, he's sort of like as a filmmaker as necessity, he used it as a way, he was mostly known as a marketer, he was actually very well known in the direct marketing sphere to where like he's been honored at their conferences. And he wrote... A, like He stopped making movies in the 70s and then he pivoted purely just to this work and made a lot of money off of it. Mm. Um, so he's known as someone who pioneered certain elements of direct marketing particularly direct mail so all the crap that you get in your mailbox that's just thank you like yeah. <laughs>
0: thank you herschel gordon lewis
1: <laughs> new figure of horror in capitalism no like for real i was, about,
2: just, I, I was about to say that like so many of my favorite filmmakers like, got their start in advertising. I was about yeah. to say that to be like, oh, yeah, so cool. And then it's like, oh, well, never mind. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, That's why I'm, yeah. o- I'm obsessed <laughs> with him as a person. Yeah. He's such an interesting, articulate, like, like, just honest person. He's so born from the sort of social environment that created him. Of the the advertising and filmmaking industries in the 1950s and 60s, he names the thing where everyone else wants to pretend to be an artist and talk around it or whatever. I was really just, a, I like, you know, I don't know, I I have not seen the Barbie movie, but I've seen so many clips of Greta Gerwig talking about the Barbie movie as if it's the like like we changed lives making this Mattel advertisement or whatever. Who is she, a-
2: darman like? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: It doesn't make it a bad movie necessarily. Again, I haven't seen it. Like, I I love watching corporate stuff and making... I'm also known as someone who has theories around the boss baby, so I'm I'm (laughs) no better than anybody in the world. Again, as always, just some guy. But, like, rather than pretending to this sort of, like, elevated sensibility in every sense of the word... So not just through the fact that he made schlocky exploitation horror films that were known for using buckets and buckets of very fake-looking blood. And for he made Blood Feast in f- – I've seen four days, I've seen five days, and I've seen six days. But either way, he made that movie in a few days on probably about $20,000 um, and changed the way that people make movies. Um, For decades and decades to come And there's not a lot of people like him um, Who's just so direct and honest Um, I think it's very profound The willingness to admit When you're working within That he's always working within This social and economic Sort of like mode Um, He made a really good living Selling schlock And he never apologized for it And and he ended up going on to influence. John Waters is probably his biggest fan. You know, John Waters apparently has a, they made as a marketing stunt, made a bunch of, they wrote a novelization of Blood Feast um, for, to hand out. And a lot of them apparently ended up in the garbage. That's how the the mythos goes. Um, And apparently John Waters bought one on eBay and keeps it vacuum sealed.
0: Um, (laughs) Amazing.
1: Yeah, it's, yeah, he uh, has an interview uh,
0: in, like, his book. Um, yeah. He has an interview with Herschel Gordon Lewis, which is great. And, like, yeah, like, his appreciation is not um, like a cold, ironic appreciation, you know, which I think is an interesting thing to talk about with like, movies like this, because there's the, you know, like, straightforward okay, this is a bad movie. Then there's the Like, sort of ironic, uh, like, I guess, uh, paracinematic fan that's like, this is so bad, it's good, and it's like fun to look at it in sort of that ironic way. And then there's like the other one, which I think is like the reparative reading, you know, where you're like looking at all of the absurdities and all of the like, things that put it very much in its time, but then also, like, what are all the contemporary things that you can pull out of it, you know? And it's, like, these are, like, movies that people throw away really quickly, but, like, I think it's also important to talk about, like, how close this movie is to, like, softcore porn.
2: Yeah, and, like, I was going to like mention real quick because like the, i think porn is related to this as as well because i know he did a lot of like girly movies but like mm-hmm. nudie cuties you know, that's right like um <laughs> like so i i've talked on um things for the memories actually about this concept before in librarianship um there is a concept called vocational awe and it's this idea that a librarianship is a divine calling that um you therefore then cannot like criticize it as a profession and you kind of sacrifice yourself to it it actually has like a deep theological root um to it uh it's a, a black uh, female like feminist scholar in in library science who came up with this concept and a lot of um uh service profession workers or like teachers and stuff have really latched onto this as well but i feel like it also relates a lot to uh uh, artisans and people who like create things for a living. Uh, Cory Doctorow talks about this a little in um his book, Book Capitalism, that like not that it's like the fault of these workers, but like art artists and stuff are kind of sometimes less likely to advocate for themselves and to demand higher wages because like just them being artists and the act of creating art is so and like hey I'm not trying to speak for you because like Kate's like actually an artist um, and I'm not
1: but like <laughs> but
2: like talks about how like you know that like sometimes people advocate for themselves because it's like making the art and getting it out there is what's more important and so it's like because like my, my dad's a musician and all the time he's like oh you know I love playing music and so it's like it feels like I'm not working I'm like no dad you need to separate your artistry and love of playing guitar and singing and stuff from you doing it as a job those things can happen at the same time but are also separate things and so I feel like Herschel Gordon Lewis is demonstrating a sort of um, I don't know if I'd call him anti-capitalist but a sort of like almost anti-cannibalistic I'm going to use coin this phrase like Whoa. way of like instead of an artisan cannibalizing themselves for their art TM, he's like, no, I need to put food on the table and I'm going to um, make softcore horror splatter movies to do it because that sells and it's cheap to make. And they're and still they're fun. fun and good, you know? yes, Yeah. And
0: people love, people enjoy them. Yeah. Um, yeah I think there's also like something, there's a, um, an article that I, like, kind of go back to a lot that um, Linda Williams wrote about mm-hmm. um, different kinds of, like, film bodies, and she puts, like, porn, horror, mm-hmm. and, like, weepies in the same Ooh. category, um, all generally, like, denigrated genres, um, and all genres that, like... um you know, provoke like intense embodied response. Ooh. Um so there's like the tear jerker, there's the jerking from being scared, and then there's like the
1: jerking off. <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> that's, that's so interesting. Yeah. Um you've both like drawn the map through Lewis's work perfectly. Um Kate, you talked about his background as a pornographer. And then, Jay, you took it through the, like, you know, saying, speaking the necessity of the filmic process, dispelling the myth-making using sort of Mm -hmm. this sort of social analysis, almost, Mm -hmm. um, as a way of talking about the expressions of culture, not to be, like rudimentary or um reductive in this sort of like antiquated base superstructure kind of reading of it but i truly believe that like that's what's so remarkably interesting about lewis's relationship with capital and how illustrative his career what his generally for someone who ended up being very influential his very short career in film he retired from it and came back and did two movies three two movies he produced a couple and then he did two he did a sequel to blood feast and then he did another movie called the uh-oh show um <laughs> nice which had, yeah it's great it's great uh <laughs> a, a, a cameo from john waters in that one i believe
0: oh cool um, yeah.
1: yeah it's it's he like well but what what you've described is like exactly what i think is so interesting and important about everything that he's done is that like he started being a pornographer again, not from this kind of like, you know, liberated perspective, not from this like sort of like, you know, debauched, whether, you know, positive or negative perspective, but because they made money yeah. and they saw that it basically they were, explo- they were exploiting a loophole in law. Like, we can show these movies that are like the tamest. Like, it's a, a lot of it is about like, it's exploitation from the 1950s. So, a lot of it is about like, there's a nudist colony, and we can see them. They did a nudist musical um, Hell yeah. and advertised it as such as, the, as to, the, to the date the first nudist musical on film, and all of that is true, and it was a marketing ploy. He put a lot of effort into his posters. He, there's kind of marketing like stuff all over the trailers that he made um for everything from the advertising for the films themselves to the budget of the films is all about how can we make something shocking provocative and like that's gonna that as many people are going to see, on a budget are going to see as possible how can we make it as fast and as cheap as possible that's what he does he does all of his own music and i love the music because it is like it is crude organ
0: yeah it's like, so weird
1: back and forth it's really unnerving and like it's funny and like there's all of this has this kind of like through line of humor to it Mm -hmm. that is extremely important for understanding like there's this relationship between blood feast and there's this uh, an imagined trilogy that fans call the blood trilogy is blood feast 2000 maniacs and then one of his last films color me blood red and uh color he really dials this up on color me blood red um but there's always this like, not not self-aware to the point of like, just as you got you were both saying, it, like it's not an iron. There's a there's a way to read this as not this kind of like self-aware ironic detachment, but kind of the almost the opposite of like it's it it is attaching itself through its own self-awareness and its ability to try and like you know, make money. Like, I just wanted to make – he did not want to be an academic. He didn't like being an – he was – he taught communications at Mississippi State, um, and that was his first kind of job. His fa- I watched an interview with him, and fun fact, his favorite class to teach was um, uh, um, Victorian poetry. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> so weird. <laughs> such a, like – he has this refinement to him that, like, you hear him talk in interviews, and he is – very well spoken very like like very uh very generous with interviewers cuz he talks to people there's videos of him online that have hundreds of views he's so well known or whatever but there are these interviews that I can't for the, the life of me I can't find anywhere else that are on a YouTube channel that has you know he was 80 year 85 years old 80 years old in some of these interviews and was just talking to people for you know almost for the fun of it at that point because he wasn't making any money off of it at like blood feast made like a lot of money for its budget it made millions of dollars um and was made for 20 grand or whatever so that was a big change in his life but then he just stopped doing that and he went and he did something else and then he would be at fangoria just at like a table like a little side table where all you know, all the creators and all the people or whatever are sitting there signing autographs or whatever. And this tiny little ninety-year-old man or whatever would be perched on the side of the table, <laughs> and like one of the most absolutely depraved lunatics in all of horror. Just this <laughs> a very unassuming kind of regular guy, and all of that is about his like. It all works, and so I can't. You you start to get into this like you get into your head. It's just like, is he personifying his himself? He's not playing a character because he doesn't give a shit about that. But is he advertising himself in a way? Like, he comes out and he's this, you know, well-dressed, well-mannered, like, and, you know, it's because he's older. That's part of it, too. But, like, how much of what he's doing is, has this wink and nod and this playful attitude to it? And the impression that I always get from reading him and watching his stuff is, like, all of it. There's no line between the sort of, like, playful attitude and his... Disturbing films, this weird, like this, the weird position that this kind of puts us in, and then on the other side of things, the uh, um, like his whole presentation of himself, he had a whole other life, you know, like, you know, it's it's just so inter, it's so interesting to me. I don't know, I don't know.
0: That's interesting, like just yeah, talking about like the humor he has in everything he does, like, um, one of the books i read for this episode is um images of blood in american cinema and it's by a norwegian person whose name i'm going to butcher it's like Chitel Rudge, <laughs> k j e t i l but um we'll put it in the show notes um but he talks about like you know the difference between irony and humor in work like this and that um Humor is, like, this, you know, it's a positive thing. It's embodied. It's, like, it um, kind of, like, looks at the comedy and, like, absurdity and, like, thinks about, like, new places, those that absurdity can take you to rather than irony being, like, removed. You know, that, like, um, there isn't, like, a gap between... I think, like, what your experience, your experience, like, of the movie, that, like, you're there in the movie enjoying it rather than, like, taking a step back and being like, what is it about this movie that's funny and I could kind of coldly make fun of, you know? (laughs) So I think that's a really interesting thing to talk about, like, his persona throughout his life, you know, and, like, how he approaches, like, people in interviews and like goes to cons and stuff like that that's cool um should we get into the movie and talk about like themes and plots and such um so you know spoilers abound um i'm i'm hoping people have seen the movie when they listen to this but you know you don't have to um i'm gonna read like a one sentence (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> synopsis um an egyptian caterer kills various women in suburban miami to use their body parts to revive a dormant egyptian goddess and i love this part i love that this is in there well an inept police detective tries to track always. him down
1: always there's and always we'll, a bubbling we'll, cop
0: yeah i mean we'll definitely talk about how this is an anti cop movie <laughs> but oh, yeah um but I think one thing, like, the first thing I noticed, because I am an artist and I'm always looking at images, is, like, I and I started keeping track of it. Every single image in this um, movie has a, like, lurid blue and a really bright pink, in addition to the blood color, which apparently is kaopectate and food coloring. So it's edible. <laughs> which I don't want to know any more about after the, (laughs) but yeah, it's, I don't know if anyone else noticed that, but there's this like very, very like extreme blue that's in like every single scene, like something that one of the women is wearing and then it's like matched with a very like extreme kind of lipsticky pink, every single scene i have not yeah.
1: noticed that yeah. i noticed his his use of color is very like everything is saturated and it's like, really like,
2: eyes wide shut mm-hmm. like <laughs> like gender colors yeah what colors gender colors
0: oh gender i thought you said ginger <laughs>
2: no
0: yeah no they're very gendered it's very like girls pink boys blue
2: <laughs> blue could also be like like a lapis lazuli yeah it could have some Egyptian Egyptian ties yeah. it could also um, just be pretty on technicolor it's something. also
0: really nice against blood
2: yeah.
0: you yeah. know and the blood is obviously pouring everywhere
1: yeah. yeah i think that last reading is the like that's the one i'm inclined toward in yeah terms of like like how does it appear on film he had worked in television and radio too, but that was his first sort of transition out of academia. And, um, he, part of the reason why he was able to make movies is because he had a bunch of cameras lying around. And I like to think that he understood, um, well, I know that he did. It's just whether, you know, I, you know, I'm not sitting here worshiping at the altar of authorial intent or anything.
0: You know, <laughs> but, you
1: know, How dare. This isn't, <laughs> this isn't 1875 or whatever, <laughs> but like, we like, there's, there's got to be some element of like, well, it's it because co- color comes into in "Color Me Blood Red," what it in which this movie is in like such clear conversation with. Um, even even through the way that he makes movies, he's still kind of self-referential because he's so stylized. But "Color Me Blood Red" is about a crazed painter who is trying to kill beautiful women because there's a certain color of red that blood makes that invigorates his art and funny enough it makes all the rich people in the community love him (laughs) um and they all all of a sudden he's he's the most he's this tortured artist who makes these this evocative paintings with all of this red on it they always ask him to they ask this artist to explain his paintings in that film too and like it partially could just be like the way that the actors delivered lines. Cause they only did one take for everything, but it also very well could be deliberate that the artist seems to just kind of make it up on the spot. Whenever a rich person is trying to buy his paintings, he's like, yeah, it's um influenced by this and that or whatever. <laughs> like just to like, and they're like, Oh yeah, I see it or whatever. When and it just like, there's this, there's this really fun sort of like, we're talking about poking fun at sort of the tropics of filmmaking. There's this like tropics of culture that's in Lewis's movies that's really prevalent here through sort of the like, we, you're, y'all already mentioned the Egyptomania kind of plot through line, um, which it's set, which is funny because Egyptomania in particular was something that was very sort of like early 20 in my mind, I'm, I could be wrong, mm-hmm. the very early 20th century. And so it's almost like he's reflecting back on it and just kind of like, oh yeah, that's something that people will recognize. And then I can, it's also
2: Victorian. Yeah.
0: It was very Victorian. Um, Yeah. And actually an, an interesting thing um, that probably won't be surprising thinking about the Victorians, but um, it sort of originated through like the Napoleonic Wars and Napoleon, um, you know, invading Egypt So of course, the mania for all things Egypt comes with like military imperialism, Um, and it's considered you know one of some people think of that as like sort of the first like modern European imperialism. Mm -hmm. So yeah, thinking about um, how Western audiences literally um, and and figuratively cannibalize. Egyptian um art culture society um I say literally because the Victorians and earlier actually there were a lot of um people were have been eating mummies for a long time but um there was sort of a, a like craze for eating mummy parts um thinking that it would bring you some sort of like you know uh medical cure of various kinds um but there were also like parties um with like high society in victorian times where they would like unwrap a mummy um which is like a an extremely gruesome unboxing youtube um, <laughs> the original the original <laughs> unboxing was unwrapping a mummy um yeah for like purely for entertainment and consumption not for um any kind of like I'm sure they thought it was for educational purposes, but really it's yeah. like you know, Victorians are notorious for um giving us a a lot of information that we think is true that is still extremely wrong, like, you know, Greek sculptures being white, things like that. Like they right. they affect so much of like what our culture thinks is um like proper art and, like, Western civilization, which is... So, like, yeah, this movie has so much to say about that. And you're right. It's interesting that, like, I don't know if there was, like, another big Egyptomania, like, thing that happened at this time. Um, But it's kind of always around. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. yeah, I mean, like, Orientalism. Yeah. Like, there's always that sort of, like, you know, that, but then they've got the cool you know that's where all the cool sh- the quote that's where all the cool shit is is in <laughs> egypt right like i remember i was totally one of those kids that was super into egypt yeah when i was a kid because i thought it was super cool it's like dinosaurs
0: yeah. egypt like all these things that sound so, yeah like far away and mystical mm-hmm. um yeah which i don't think is necessarily wrong like once you understand
2: yeah
0: you know like the humanity of people who live in another part of the of the world but like obviously um that was not part of Napoleon's plan
2: mm-hmm yeah and like speaking of art like they also would g- grind up mummy bits and yes make a, for a mummy paint, brown mummy brown which is um fucking yeah.
0: nuts
2: <laughs> was it in cosmetics too or just paint i don't remember
0: i'm sure it was in cosmetics at some yeah. point but like yeah there is a there's a piece i forget it's in a big one of the big painting um like museums and there's a, a painting from like a victorian era that has it's listed like mummy brown as one of the colors um which is pretty gross and so that's like, literally
2: what color me blood red is but instead of it being blood it's yeah. like yeah
0: well and then like one of the things oh, yeah. that's led to obviously was like um fake mummies you uh, know so yeah. there was like obviously a um a pretty gruesome black market trade of people who could be passed off as mummies um, which is pretty disgusting and like I think this movie um, you know uh, we don't have to talk about whether it consciously references that or not but I think there's a lot of interesting um, things to talk about obviously with like class and being an immigrant in a like very white bourgeois proper community that has like women wearing white gloves and shit like that around you, you know?
1: Yeah. There's always this element of the thing that it's the thing that strikes me the most, really. There's this through element in his films of the things, the anxieties around dismemberment and consumption and maybe death or generally from the, from a bourgeois perspective, um or not even like even a like you know in general from just some sort of like upper class like more aristocratic perspective there it does sort of like the movies always impose their own like you know we're talking about orientalism they sort of invite this almost contrapuntalism between the on the one hand the sort of uh the perspectives and the dispositions of the characters within the movie who are upper class and refined. And one of the best quotes from blood feast is the dinner party will take our minds off all of this terrible killing. They're throwing that dinner party. That could have it, been in Hannibal, you know, like. it is
0: amazing. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. yeah. And it turns out like, you know, the dinner party, the, the thing that actually is that all the killing is driving toward is the thing that they're seeking relief from. There's always this internal sort of like resolution that the upper class characters can find, but then their fear usually comes and overtakes them. Two Thousand Maniacs does that really, really well because it is Two Thousand Maniacs is Brigadoon but exploitation horror. <laughs> so it's these New Englanders or these, Better. or they're from New York. These uh, Yankees, as they call them, are driving south and in two different groups there's one group there with, with that's two couples upper class couples driving a convertible and then there's another group the two central characters a woman who is driving in a hitchhiker that she picks up who's a teacher on his way to a teaching conference in atlanta and then they basically get taken they get guided off onto this dirt road and they encounter this it's brigadoon but racist but the, like, the, it's a Confederate town that it's all these Confederate so ghosts. So are you do? No. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, yeah,
0: probably. Yeah,
1: probably. <laughs> yeah, let's face it. Um, and so, and then all of, like, the characters that survive aren't the people who have the greatest fear, um, who aren't encountering their worst, sort of, like, the worst fears emerging from their bourgeois sensibilities. It's these, like, these these two couples who are like both assuming and naive, um, both sort of like misguided and also suspicious, and they end up getting, you know, one of them gets draw literally drawn and quartered. Someone gets a giant comical bolt. It's all in this, it's all in festive and celebration. They're celebrating a centennial, and by... Kidnapping Yankees and drawing quartering them and dropping rocks on them, and one of them gets rolled down a hill in a barrel with a bunch oh, of nails like in it. <laughs> like, like, it's like, but with a like a bluegrass band yeah. that walks around and plays music about how the South will rise again. It's right,
0: like,
2: but it's, it's just like, that guy Richmond North of Richmond. Like,
0: okay. <laughs> God, that guy. He's just playing in the town square. <laughs>
1: complaining about welfare and he's like it's just
0: economic anxiety
1: oh that's so funny (laughs) (laughs) um but like that the the obsession the the sort of like the fear and anxiety of the upper classes as something that as a spectacle that people are interested in seeing as something that like he understands something that the film understands is titillating yeah. Um, for really anyone who's watching it, um, is apparent through the like cultural expressions of the and the cultural differences within the movies. Call me Blood Red is about this the art community and how silly and ridiculous it can be. Um uh, two thousand Maniacs about the the fear of like reprisal for from the you know, from from like hillbillies basically um and then in this case they're like their own cultural obsession coming back and literally biting them not to make biting jokes on the cannibalism podcast is a little no trite, no but... please
2: do
0: <laughs> we love cannibal puns
1: yay
2: um <laughs> no, if there's one podcast a... where you can do that it's here that's yeah. true this is the podcast for that that's um, true yeah.
0: but yeah it's true it is like the you know, in this, in this film, for some reason, all of the, um, bourgeois ladies and I guess some gentlemen, but it seems very focused on ladies, um, Mm. are like all taking a Egyptology class and are like obsessed with, um, you know, in the way that like a lot of like rich liberals get sort of obsessed with like authenticity and Mm. they want, um what they think is authentic and they want to like purchase it. They want somebody to do it for them. So in this case it's this woman who is throwing a surprise party for her daughter and goes to Fuad Ramsey's uh like Egyptian shop slash (laughs) caterer space Uh um and like (laughs) asks for a like quote unquote like special authentic Egyptian feast. And, like, clearly has no idea what um, she's really asking for. But, you know, they all think, like, this is amazing. We're going to all sit around in our, like, white gloves and have this lovely feast that this nice, gentle immigrant man is going to serve us.
2: I mean, I I feel like this is, like... I was about to say, what if uh, Birth of a Nation was a horror film? But it is a horror film. Um, but yeah. it's like you know, like the the anxieties about white, particularly Southern um, white, like womanhood and femininity, and like the protection and sanctity of that. Um, and here we have not only like um, an outsider, but one from a, a brown place, basically like and like the sort of like intrusion um and cannibalization of like yeah. white southern like womanhood i mean like you know birth of a nation is about black men um like kidnapping and raping white women yeah. and the kkk killing them for it right and so it's like this sort of like intrusion into white southern femininity that justifies mm-hmm. the racist atrocities of that happened in the south and in the north, I don't want to be like the south is bad. Um, it's in the north too, people. But like in like the sort of like genteel southern "Gone with the Wind," I'll never
1: go hungry again. Femininity. Yeah, he yeah. made a like y kind of "Gone with the Wind" type of thing at one point.
0: Oh my god, um, what has yeah, this man done? He <laughs> had
1: so many ideas that were even worse, and it's great. Uh, <laughs> How, how he accomplished so much and like I love a man years. who will
0: throw anything at the wall and see if it'll stick. <laughs>
1: anything, every advertising. He's my yeah. favorite capitalist in the entire world. I like, but like, what's so interesting? You y'all are bringing up really interesting points that very neatly kind of settle back on the gender question of HGL's movies. Yeah, and like, there is this very like, there's this sort of confrontation of middle-class fears as well around Jay as you're saying this sort of like sanctity of a certain type of like white woman aristocratic white woman it's as Kate as you're saying in the cultural expressions of that same community how the um you know the the very thing the authenticity their desire for the authoritative perspective and then Lewis's like direct confrontation of the authoritative perspective in that. And what's so interesting is something that I would like more people to talk about is one of HGL's collaborators. Um, I think they may have been married at one point. Um, I wish I knew more about Louise Down, but Louise Down, in some places I read, offered, she's a collaborator with Lewis um, and his producers and like business partners or whatever. Um, and also a writer. She appeared in some of his movies. She wrote some. She appeared in some other films as well. Some low budget stuff. And a lot of low budget movies made in Florida at this time, and like including like you know like in Ocala where my whole family lives. There's supposedly, I mean, actually I don't think it's not supposedly. People have seen them. There are monkeys in Ocala. This is like North Central Florida, like north of some of the very hick ass places that like where he filmed. Two thousand maniacs, okay. Um, for example, and they, there's monkeys around this old theme park that's in Ocala because they filmed a kind of like King Kong ripoff.
0: Oh my there god! There at
1: one point, it's awesome. It's so it's the, the goofiest local lore ever that makes so much sense oh, i it love really
0: local like animal lore oh okay, I, right. I yeah i can't get enough of it <laughs>
2: there's turkeys that just like walk around cambridge and it's really fun yeah to, like, that kind of stuff of can't get yeah. enough of it so there's dirty. like a,
0: there's a town in arkansas that's obsessed with like the ivory-billed woodpecker because it's like extinct but they think that like they're always like no we saw it and like that i'll kind of tell stuff. you where and i saw it, it
2: last night hey!
0: at, the, yeah. at the leather bar <laughs> <Yeah>. um, anyway <laughs> total tangents <laughs> no.
1: uh, louise down louise down was the she's from florida lewis filmed a lot of his movies and ended up settled he was from pittsburgh and spent most of his t- like childhood and, and stuff and in chicago But then settled in, I believe, Pompano Beach, which is right by Fort Lauderdale in South Florida. Mm -hmm. Louise Down was also from there, and she was a collaborator of his who wrote mostly, like, supposedly she is an originator for the idea around Blood Feast, at least in part. Um, But what really is most interesting to me is a movie that she wrote called She Devils on Wheels. Hell yeah. It was,
0: nice. It's
1: about an all woman, man eating biker gang <gasps> that goes all right, to that's, war.
0: That's up next.
1: And <laughs> have them on the pod. <laughs> it's really interesting. It's really like. It was also released in 1968, which has all of these fucking implications that I haven't even gotten a chance to explore. Yeah. Their, their <laughs> motorcycle gang is literally called the Man Eaters, And they. Like, they like torture a small town in florida and fight with men a, an all-male motorcycle gang and like have races and stuff like that and like it i oh, mean i can't give away the plot of that movie
0: no, yeah don't like we'll just have you on, cat. We'll kill, just have kill, you on woke, for it she yeah. devils
1: we'll, we'll, we'll absolutely, whatever absolutely yeah. talk about talk yeah. about that movie um but like louise down is this like really interesting figure that like I'm sure there's more out there about her um than i'm familiar with as just like a as like a movie fan approaching as a like a fan first and like an academic pseudo para-academic second um <laughs> which is how i approach lewis's movies i'm just a fan because i love horror movies but like there's always this sort of like looming specter of this like as you so usefully described earlier in the conversation the third reading mm-hmm. um the uh, uh that we can do of lewis's movies i think like when you take the not just the individual films that he's made but the entirety of his uh filmography into account all of a sudden you find all of this complicating like all these like really complicating gender politics yeah or the way that we approach the you know schlocky clearly deliberately exploitative um you know like women killing that is (laughs) happening quite a bit throughout his movies um it's not it's so i don't remember trend thought (laughs) no i think it's good
0: yeah like i think we should talk about that and i should give credit to um that's eve Kosofsky sedgwick who talks I about so yeah much. me too who do, Who talks about reparative readings and mm-hmm. you know how you can um you know it's it's how we can look at movies that are made by not just this but also like problematic people and yeah. still have thoughtful readings that maybe can be liberatory um yeah.
2: so without the really, whole or is dead kind of yeah,
0: yeah 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 like you can talk about rosemary's baby in a different way without yeah. you know having to talk about Polanski. (laughs) But um yeah, it's a fantastic movie. And there's so many movies that like you you don't need to like throw in the bin.
2: But sometimes bad people are good at things. Yeah. (laughs) But I
0: think we should talk about like the killings. Um because so um another book that like everyone should read who listens to our podcast um is Splatter Capital by Mark Stevens, which is such a good book. Yes. Um but he talks about how, like, you know, Splatter films are different than Slasher. Like, Slasher, there's, like, the, fi- the concept of the final girl that we start to, like, yeah. identify with mm-hmm. towards the end. And this has way more of, like, the porn aesthetic of, like, a little bit of dialogue, kill. A little yeah. bit of dialogue, kill. And, like, you start kind of waiting. And, I mean, you know, it's, like, problematic or no you start waiting for the next kill and like what's it gonna look like what's it gonna do to you
2: it's also way gooier. (laughs) <laughs> um, and there's like sounds right yeah. there's a lot of like sliminess and wetness and like i don't know the money shot that you don't necessarily yeah get no it's a totally the money film. shot yeah yeah there's like an erotics of, of mm-hmm. like sex and death mm-hmm. and like what it does to the body both on film and also you as a viewer yeah no right? i have that, to like i connect with
0: the scene where the woman is getting like her tongue pulled out yeah. Is like a highly erotically so. charged scene. Mm-hmm. You know, it's pretty hot and also horrifying. And like, yeah. you know, I think that's an interesting thing to talk about. So,
2: yeah. Yeah. I remember I forget which uh, HGL film it was. It's not Wizard of Gore, but it's one of the other ones that Ash recommended to me. This has got this guy that gets attacked by his bed, like while he's in the bed. hmm. Um, and I'm like, that's like the hottest thing I've ever seen in my life. Like, know that get, do it for me. But I was like, Oh, I can tell that this guy made like softcore, right? Like, I don't know, yeah. he's just so good at like clueing into the libidinal desires of someone who doesn't like the whole like I'm gonna go see a movie and I'm not there to be in this like high minded intellectual space. I like this is for my body, this is for my pleasure whether that be sexual or not
1: you know yeah absolutely there's like there's this really like this the like there's this resistance against as we were talking about the sort of like the yeah a lot of blood fees people pl- place it in conversation with psycho a lot as mm-hmm. this kind of response to psycho and i think that's like i mean objectively true in terms of the filmmaker's intent um they saw psycho and thought how can we make psycho actually psycho like how can we how can how can we take the take these elements here but put it in a uh, quite honestly a less refined context if the form of refinement is trying to find the point of identification with the characters out of like necessity for the forwarding of like of our interest in the plot, out of the refinement of you know telling rather than directly showing or partially showing rather than fully telling, which there are like elements of that in his in Lewis's like more pornographic filmmaking, but it's rather than a, an alteration of those ideas, it's as we're talking about sort of an an a confrontation with the idea with with those ideas as authoritative that is so like like that i imagine was like difficult for some people to deal with um until they you know until some distance was had and people were able to sort of approach his movies with a more like ironic detachment or as we were saying as something to laugh at um like he had a film Actually, I don't even think he made that movie. Lewis would, like, he would buy the rights to reels of unfinished movies and then just fucking finish them.
0: That's so cool. Oh, I love, I cool. That. I, I I love, love
1: that. that. I really love that. And I believe... So you know? I really think that, like, uh, the movie... He had a movie featured in Mystery Science Theater 3000, which was they said it was the worst one they ever saw i think and i believe that was monster Gogo, which is a Lewis movie and i believe monster Gogo was not his full pro- i think that was one that he just bought the reel from uh <laughs> and decided that he was going to finish he would make cartoons like he made stuff that was geared toward children too by like filming a few putting a couple of things together and then taking foreign cartoons and then just dubbing over them with whatever he wanted like he would just like take a couple of things and stash it. it is it is very frankensteinian in this like it's cannibalistic it, yeah it really is the industry and like the author consumes himself almost in this like and not as like and that's the best part about it not as some magnificent self-sacrificial act but purely because he could and he thought it was a good idea at the time and like that kind of the the sort of urgences of that kind of filmmaking is personally so much more interesting to me than like you know like what's going on in Paul Thomas Anderson's head like he makes good movies but like I don't care really what I, oh I he makes good movies and I watch them but I don't care what he thinks I care what this guy thinks
0: <laughs> because
1: it's so much closer to what we all experience in our day to day lives than any anything that can be so refined as to be detached. And it's through the realignment of that idea of authenticity that is so powerful to me. And why it maps onto class politics, I think, so neatly.
0: Yeah. All of
1: a sudden, we don't have to care about things that authorities care about. And the authoritative position is actually being able to approach these things in a completely different way. And to confront them with their, like, to be confronted by a creation of your own making, um sort of um which like you know that happens in his movies all the time too you know the end of 2000 maniacs um the end of blood feast is like yeah the the sort of the central characters come more into they're not like they're not hunted down in revenge like that doesn't happen in his movies that like when someone dies who was doing the killing it feels more like happenstance by virtue of the events that were already going on which sat which is so like remarkable to like examine some element of human agency and then to just deny that same agency in a way that i think horror is so often trying to do that and not doing it successfully because again it's so shoved up its own butt sometimes that like it can't it can't it, it, it it can't resist the urgent, to the urgency of explaining yourself and refining yourself and rather what I want, I want someone to get 20 grand to go make a movie in five days and, sh- and to see what that tells me about, you know, not to be too dramatic about it, but like kind of what it means to be a person in contemporary capitalism. I think, like, it's not all movies that are made, like, shot straight from your hip are good, and most of them are probably pretty fucking terrible. But what's so interesting about these ones is that they have, like, they resonated with people um, from this, like, voyeuristic perspective in the drive-through, and then that evolves to this more, again, you know, ironic, detached perspective. And then yet again, as we sort of loop back on... Like we confront these readings with their own results, right? What, what like what are the results of a you know a working class white audience of white men in a drive-in movie theater, um, when confronted with these ideas? Then like what of the you know ironically detached middle class refined filmic perspective, those sort of like ironic or post ironic perspective,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know, there's so much like like the this like it's fun like there's so much humor in the sadism, but it feels so much more real and authentic, which I think is where the sexual element kind of like the sexual element wakes, it wakes it up in a way that like feels, I don't know. I don't know exactly what, I don't know exactly how it feels.
0: I think everything just feels very, maybe it feels urgent because it was like made urgently, (laughs) you know, like if you have to, if you make a movie in five days, you have to really get to, like, the meat, pardon um, that, uh, of what you want to show, you know? Like, we we know why we're here. We're here to see, like, progressively, like, more gruesome, bloody kills. Yeah. Um. But then the interesting thing is, like you said, it kind of plays with, at the end, like, you know, you think what will happen is, like, we get progressively bloodier kills. Fuad gets like the, you know, what he needs to wake up Ishtar. And then he is also killed off in a completely unspectacular manner. Yeah. Um, you know, he by a, another worker who's just going about his day, you know, he's, he, um, you know, there's a, a chase scene and he's trying to get away from the cops and he climbs into the back of a garbage truck and the garbage The garbage guy doesn't even know that he's in the in the truck. And so he does, you know, his like compactor thing and and that's the end of him. And like the cops kind of look at it and they're like, well, another job well done. And they walk away and leave the worker to again deal with the, you know, this bloody scene this gruesome you know scene of a man who was just like completely smushed in the back of a of a truck and it's like you think that the end like most horror movies will have that moment where like you know the anti-hero is like ha 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 I've done it again you know and it's like he assembled everything he needs and like you think he's gonna win but like that doesn't happen at all or does it I mean we don't know like at the end we see Ishtar crying. Um and you know, is she, is she sad because she wasn't properly reawoken or did it happen or I don't know. Which is also cool that it's just like end scene. But like, you know, he's just like an he's just a goon for her at the end, really. Like, he's not the hero or the anti hero. There's no geeky
2: like girl boss. There's yeah, yeah. yeah. Ishtar. <laughs> Yeah,
0: but yeah like no one really becomes there's no final girl there's no final you know villain it's just over
1: yeah the movie needed to end they were done yeah i think we got i think we got it i think yeah (laughs) (laughs) the resolving mantra of all of his movies are do we get it i think we got it yeah
0: Yeah. and then like the final you know quote-unquote final girl who's not like the final girl the way we think of them in slashers i forget her name in the movie the debutante whose birthday party it is like she never becomes is it dorothy is it dorothy i don't know maybe dorothy
1: yeah dorothy is it.
0: Oh, Suzette yeah. is the girl is the is the daughter.
1: Yeah.
0: So Suzette yeah. Suzette like never becomes the final girl because she doesn't even realize what's happening to her. <laughs> like she never gets to a point until the just this tiny, you know, like she almost gets murdered, but right before then she thinks the whole thing's just fun and like she has no self she doesn't have the self-awareness that she need would need to have to be like a final girl. So those tropes are kind of, like, not part of this.
1: There's another movie that I've talked about a lot on the internet that is also notor- read as notoriously bad, like, mm-hmm. Razzie nominations and stuff yeah. like that. That also does this really well because it's a filmmaker who, through his, in this case, this is someone who is trying to be incredibly artistically ambitious um, because he's a, clearly a very big fan of David Lynch, but is made a uh, a David Lynch like torture porn body swapping movie starring starring Lindsay Lohan is called I Know Who Killed Me
0: Oh um
1: I love that movie I talked to, my first ep- the first time I ever appeared on famous horror podcast The Horror Vanguard was to talk about Friends of I the know Pod who killed me Yes Friends of the Pod uh I uh, um that movie is so like it's about Lindsay Lohan is a like a like a child child she, like yeah she, she's a teenager like a teenage piano prodigy and writing prodigy who has all of the wow. great prospects in the world and then she gets kidnapped by this killer who is obsessed with the color blue.
2: She should buy this from our
1: music library. It, it turns out, it turns out that she is a twin, and that she body swaps with the twin. There's also mm. like telepathic communication through stigmata that appear on both. Hell yeah! Episodes. It's amazing. It's amazing. There's <laughs> there's five. This must million. be the best movie ever made. It's yeah. so good. There's an alternative ending that suggests that she wrote it all as a short story when she went to college, which I love. I wish no that was the real... Apparently that ending was shown and people revolted. They hated it <laughs> so much so they changed the ending. But it, like... Yeah. That movie is all about one individual woman's like, dealings with the social world, similar to, like... Th- this, these films are so about, like, the, like... The, the idea, like, the sort of, like, cultural sensibilities, and I Know Who Killed Me is very much about social institutions and their own inability to, it's very much, it's very confronting of um, medicalization, as well as the idea of the police, um, as, like, both of these institutions there's are constantly not believing the things that are happening right in front of them, and things that the character says, in a way that, like, does not like cater to any kind of like there there's an intended redemption arc but it doesn't work none of it works and that's what's so like kind of interesting about it, is because since none of these like attempts at a refined narrative actually line up together all of a sudden all of this social stuff is just kind of like brought to the front it's about this body swapping stripper who because she's a stripper no one believes anything that she says no one trusts the word that she says she is like taken from this high status position as a young woman and then it turns out she has an identical twin who is from a lower class status and all of a sudden everything that she says gets brought into question and so you have these like You have this artistry on the on the on the hand on on the one hand with this movie an attempted artistry that fails and thus creates this brings out all of the social tension present in narratives that people make in films and then you have lewis who works from that social tension by just like he's a guy out to try and make some money you and he has some film equipment around and he's like oh you know maybe i can do this instead of advertising and you come to kind of the same conclusion that when we get so sort of that cultural authorities aren't always to be trusted that the authoritative position is something that is worth interrogating mm-hmm. um, in, in a way that sort of and and that that actually can have a hand in mapping onto someone's actual experiences when they're watching a movie, and that everything else has a tendency to like not everything else but you know in some ways other ways of making culture has a tendency to Maybe reify those institutions or to at least contribute to the discursive positions and formations of those institutions rather than actually confronting them. And I think yeah. Lewis does something very similar from a radically, de- it's a random movie to bring up, but that connection was very interesting.
0: <laughs> I love that. And now I'm going to go see that movie. It's um, so
1: good. It's so silly. I really yeah. it.
0: Well, speaking of um, authoritative. Um, organizations I feel like we should talk about the cops in this movie oh yeah Um, because they are the worst as cops are uh, want to be but um, yeah I mean they have no grasp on this case at all and even like you know uh, Suzette is dating a cop and he is as menacing to her as a woman as anyone, anyone else could be in this film. Like, you know, he is, he even says like, you know, you should be more worried about me than you are about this killer while they're like, you know, necking in a car. Uh-huh. Um, it's such a, a condemnation of the cops. And also just like, I don't know if he does this on purpose. Cause I feel like all of the scenes in between the kills are like, you know, kind of, a little stiff and like clearly like you said, like they're doing these in like one take, but you're just like, I cannot wait to get away from these guys. Like bring on Fuad again, bring on a kill.
1: (laughs) Yeah, they like one of the one of the best Lewis tropes in movies, if I recall correctly, is people telling the police what's happening. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) They never know what's going on. Someone always is like, come quick, so you only ever go and get the cops. And then they always show up and they're never able to actually do anything effectively. They don't solve crimes. They are these like, uh, they're either this sort of like passive social element that just kind of like comes in and tries to like order things and arrange things or just as you said, they're actually this sort of internal antagonistic element that is like, either like, like, they're just they're just really terrible at their job and they're also bad people um and he does not lewis does not trust he's very like he's very american in that like there's this kind of um, i don't i don't know he didn't grow up a redneck but it sounds like you know kind of the old school redneck sensibility to me which is this like hyper individualistic like to the point of distrusting you distrust you you a a kind of American individualism that actually has the capacity to distrust institutions in some way, even if they don't actually confront those politically still, you know, everyone has an uncle who just like doesn't trust the cops. Oh, Uh, totally. Yeah.
0: Also loves. Yeah. It's like the, the, don't trust the cops. I love my guns. Like Trump or somebody who's very authoritarian is going to save us. You know, it's like a, it's a very flawed ideology, but like it is, One that is developed for a reason, Mm -hmm. you know, and like, I understand very much like the distrust that, um, you know, any working class person would have of the cops.
2: Yeah. Yeah. As they should.
0: Yeah. Well, any person really should distrust the cops. But like, yeah, I do love that this is a movie that puts forward that, you know, yeah, the cops are not, they do not know what's going on. They keep getting calls about murders and they show up and they're like wow i don't know (laughs) this one's crazy (laughs) (laughs) and like you know the woman in the dying uh you know in her hospital bed trying to tell the cop the name of the um of you know ishtar and she's like itar and like Mm -hmm. this jackass is going to those egyptology classes and learning about ishtar and it took him a while to put that together
1: <laughs> i mean he just like he escapes like he escaped right when the police got there yeah like, they get there and he escapes and i'm like i love how that that's constantly being set up that like there's not like even the, like in horror horror does this you know frequently they have there's bumbling cops in a lot of horror movies. Um, I love the way Clive Barker does a bumbling cop. Um, for example, yeah, there's
0: a lot of uh, mm-hmm. bumbling cops in Buffy. You know, like there are, aren't there? Yeah, there's a lot of um, just the assertion that like the police can't help with any of these things, any of yeah. like the Buffy. Like hell mouth related things, which they can't, they don't know what to do at all, and to call right. them is just to like have them misunderstand the reality of the situation, which is something far more complicated than a cop could ever understand,
2: right mhm,
0: and like how do you explain, yeah, how do you explain to a police officer that you know in a similar way that Buffy has to explain that there's like actually a demon that looks like her and it's not her who killed the guy you know that like how would you explain to a police officer that you know you just need to raise an egyptian goddess for a feast and like i'm sorry but i'm gonna have to kill some people for it you know like that's a thing they're not going to understand
1: (laughs) yeah they just have they just once things kind of resolve themselves in the same way like we did it you know, we did it. Yeah, life.
0: they congratulated themselves at the end. Yeah. You know, they were like, "We did this. We we took care of it." And like, you know, he was taken care of by like accidentally getting into a garbage truck.
1: It, he died like the garbage he was. Yeah, I mean, it's, all oh, hidden, yeah. But it's just like, well, you know, everything is so you know fixed and static, including you know, I don't know. Like it's 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 refreshing to have those sort of like social authorities called into some question in a way that's not like, you know, reduced to uh, individual ineptitude. Right. Or, like a bad
0: apple guy. Yeah. Yeah
1: or, yeah. or someone who's just not someone who can't get over their own biases or a cop who just can't, you know, he has, you know, the police officer has these problems and thus they come into conflict with the story. And that's what, doesn't allow them to like illuminate to see the things that are you know being done in front of them for how they actually are it's like no the institution is just this It ha- it's just this presence and that's so much more useful to me um or interesting or i mean or I mean cutting i don't know there's my political
0: yeah like, well uh, and like i feel like that's even um it's illustrated in the fact that like to me all those cops look the same like they look like um i always think that like those kinds of guys look like men they're men who look like thumbs like you just kind of are like that's a cop looking dude you know (laughs) and so like you can't tell they're they all look the same so it's like this flattened in the same way that i think a lot of the upper class like bourgeois women in this Mm -hmm. film kind of are flattened like the cops are flattened into like a just sort of presence like you said not a not a group not a, a variety of different men with different opinions
2: yeah <laughs> so we're about an hour hour in
0: yeah it is we- did you want
2: to talk about benjamin at all <laughs> <laughs> I my
1: book who cares oh, about my
0: book yeah so wrapping it up how does this all relate to walter ben <laughs> it really doesn't have to it does in like it myriad ways but also you know we don't well, know. there's
1: like there's the idea of like if we can we can bring it to history right like okay. there's this one of my favorite things about lewis that kind of sums up my sort of full interest in the sort of full circle of my recurring interest in his work is that like he has this idea that in his movies and in this movie especially because of the historical element in the egyptomania thing that like you know history is a a a competition um and it is really important to think about the way that the upper classes think about their role in history um as the shapers and the makers of it purely through consumption, even the elements of sort of bourgeois society that is just extractive and ingratiating of like their own little like microcosm of wealth or whatever, even the most detached of the bourgeois has this sort of desire to think themselves into history, um, to see themselves as the maker and the changer of it through their consumption of its most authoritative forms. That's what I like so much about why I'm interested in labor history and history from below and these other sort of um, like, uh, not not micro history as like a discipline, but these like micro political elements in history that links sort of small stories and individual experience Mm -hmm. to a larger class formation. Um, one is because you can't I believe that you can do that, which is remarkable in and of itself, but also because that like there's just a, like like there's a war for the there's there's a war for the future using the past in the present always there is like what we think about the past in the future matters now, yeah, and so the way that we as not aristocratic assholes think through practice and make history in the present is extremely important. Um, I think it has a like a huge political effect on people. I think it empowers people to think through their own lives in a way that's both um, confronting of the problems of our contemporary moment, while also sort of giving body to its like solutions. Um, And like, you know, a schlocky like horror director is not like who is just trying to make make a buck, is not the, you know, <laughs> definitive way to think through this or even the like most obvious or in any way an obvious one, but I find it compelling to take culture and use it to confront these sort of like historical elements of bourgeois thought and ideology and the way that it influences the way that we think about our own history. Um so there's always there's always a connection to historical phenomena in culture um and it's through that connection that we can like make something that you can take twenty thousand dollars in four days and some random people that you find in south florida and try and like change the film industry which he did like he you know he 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 went into this with a level of self-awareness and enough determination to like make some very strange very very long lasting impact his movies there's a box set um, shout outs to my very good friend uh, who's a <laughs> I got I I got the Herschel Gordon Lewis box set which came out I think like 10 years ago or some 15 years ago maybe the DVD box set has been reissued a few times and I got it as a gift from a friend of mine who's a labor organizer so shout outs to my friend Ryan the best organizer oh, yeah. I know
2: oh and shout out to SAG after a strike um, Ooh, yeah, yeah.
1: lots of good tentative agreements happened.
0: Yay! Yeah.
1: Um, <laughs> no, it, like that's there's like to have your like sort of like goofy horror stuff be acknowledged in the way that Lewis's work has is one thing, but to have it, in my opinion, and as I would argue, to have it be so in and of itself impactful, um, and long lasting, um, is a testament to. You know, our like abilities in confronting all of the authoritative, um, and author- authoritative thought and all of the authorities, um, of our contemporary moment. Be provocative, um, cut against the grain, be countercultural, like, and you know, be countercultural, be communal. Like work on the baking, so do all of this and make it communal, and you have something really magic. And you know, in my opinion, but you know, it's, at the end of the day also what I like the most about this is that these are fun movies um, that do not take themselves seriously um, <laughs> and manage to do something thought-provoking. Out of not, if I can find something thought-provoking that's not taking itself seriously, that's like my whole thing, um, and I'm down as fuck. Um, but I also love that, like,
2: the process of filmmaking, of making a movie, yeah. is taken seriously because that's a job. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's like taking the work seriously without being up your own ass yes. about the film Tm.
0: Which, you know, we love films, too, here. Mm-hmm. But, films. But this yeah. is I do a, love yeah. films. Films. <laughs> We're pretentious <laughs> bitches sometimes,
1: but mm-hmm. you don't have so, to be. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I don't have to be.
0: <laughs> yeah exactly and that, isn't that wonderful? Isn't that a wonderful yeah. thing that we can do? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's a good spot to end it and you and you definitely tied uh some Benjaminian approaches to history and progress in there um which is rad uh yeah, Jay, you have any other thoughts?
2: Mm. Just been reflecting on my own egyptomania yeah in my life really because of this yeah like my favorite opera is oh. Uh by philip glass which is about the pharaoh
0: yeah like, i mean i think you can appreciate and, yeah egyptian culture and i think it's like always mm-hmm. you know like our again like this movie kind of like makes fun of our uh anxiety about finding what is authentic can sometimes lead you down horrific paths also like I think that authenticity is Mm -hmm. is extremely complicated and Mm -hmm. um often the truth is like very confusing um yeah
2: yeah like with Akhenaten um uh the The composer for it is Phil Glass, um, and he is Jewish. And part of what he wanted to do with the opera, um, because Akhenaten was the one who instituted like monotheism mm-hmm. in Egypt, you know, sun worship. Um, and there's a lot of mixture of like, um, like there's parts like there's no libretto really. They're just kind of going like ha, and then singing in ancient Egyptian sometimes, oh, I and there's a part where they that. say. Yeah, like there's a part where the, the priests are singing Amen because, um, like, Amen, like Amenhotep, uh, but Amen okay. as in, like, you know, um, and they're at the end of Hymn to the Sun, which is always sung in the language of the audience, um, off stage is a choir singing a, a hymn in Hebrew because like you know the you know the jews were driven out of egypt right right? and so philip Glass is doing a lot of mixture and stuff there but then akhenaten is like always fucking played by a white dude and not on Uh, purpose mm -hmm. but akhenaten is a countertenor um and um like there's a big problem in opera of like race blind casting but also there's a that means a lot of times they'll do like You know, Aida and blackface happens. (gasps) Um, They luckily don't do blackface for Akhenaten, but like in 2019, I went to go see it at the mat and a pasty white dude. Most Nefertiti was a black woman. She was like one of the only black people on that stage about Egyptian people, right? Um, And so, like, just thinking about in like culture today, now, I mean, I think this opera was from the 80s. Arthur, what is it, Bob? You're waking up, Arthur's been snoozing
0: on the bed. <laughs> and up and Arthur they, like, lo- Arthur's nice. like, I love opera,
2: yeah, but like the sort of like Egypto mania of ignoring, like, you know, the way that we view Egypt and its dead artifacts yeah. and ignore the real people who lived there oh absolutely and yeah. still live there and, but like yeah, it's, like it's Egypt, not like Egyptian Egypt, yeah, Egypt yeah, it's is still like there is Atlantis
0: by the way. or something you know yeah, and they, yeah it it's still there mystical and didn't exist and still hasn't or yeah, yeah. a real place with people but
2: that yeah and that we forget we, ob- we obfuscate those people and like what kinds of racial and colonial violence that can cause, including like Egyptomania, right? Where it's like wealthy white people literally eating the mummified corpses of these like Egyptians. And possibly right?
0: also just the underclasses masked yeah. as Egyptians. Yeah. Which is yeah. also disgusting. Yeah. That you would be you're so your your pursuit of like uh some sort of like embodied authenticity leads you to eat the most like something that's not egyptian at all that like people are are you know are just replacing like the bones of the working class you know just throwing them into a a, um a mummy outfit (laughs) you know to just be like here you go um you know that 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 like yeah this the search for some sort of like authenticity but through the lens of colonialism is incredibly violent
2: and like thinking about how in this film it's like these like like kyle like you were saying this like anxiety of dismemberment like it's not like whole people being like you know put in the suit, right it's like body parts are being like like uh, people are being like torn apart, like, like the body is being—is it a body without organs? Are we going to go there? Do we need to check that off the bingo? No, I think I there's
0: know. organs in there.
2: Yeah, there's <laughs> organs in there. Okay, I've not read Deleuze it's Actually, this is, some is not having read Deleuze. I have not read a <laughs> single word of Deleuze. All the Deleuze I know, well, you know is through just osmosis. When I was friends. talking <laughs>
0: about humor earlier, I was talking about the delizian read of humor. That's true. What is walking Right? Yeah
2: yeah oh yeah but but yeah so like thinking about like the dehumanizing dismembering uh, of that happens in egyptomania that is like demonstrated in this film right both like with someone dismembering people to sacrifice them to ishtar but also like that's what egyptomania is is its dismemberment Mm
0: -hmm. yeah and i think like yeah bringing it back to history and Benjamin the him he being so um uh like skeptical of you know even like what marxists often think of as progress you know that mm. like the march forward of progress that like we think is that's usually pretty irresistible like he's very ske- was very skeptical of that um good and that yeah <laughs> that it doesn't like allow an opportunity for like awareness of the present the future or the past you, yeah, know, it's a disa- you know it's actually
1: a disaster it's an it accum- accumulating disaster
0: yeah yeah um which is i mean it honestly as someone who um is always kind of like flip-flopping between like marxism and anarchism i think Benjamin is a really good um person to read it, it takes a lot of work and time for me to understand him but um i think you just kind of have he's a lot there's a lot of vibes going (laughs) he gotta just enjoy the vibes but yeah like he 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 doesn't have that like (laughs) yeah like orthodox marxist like progress march forward um thing going at all like if marx
2: is like this like holy science of dialectical materialism or whatever the fuck it's called uh then (laughs) benjamin is like
1: you
0: know, My, the weird like mysticism cousin. and
1: the, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, yeah. The, the, the we call it the warm stream know. the warm stream of Marxism. Love it, um, I love
0: warm Marxism.
1: Yeah, the ben, the Benjaminian Brechtian Blockian yeah. Thing, uh, <laughs> that is... There's got
2: to be like a Eastern or Western block joke
1: in there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: There's There's Soviet
1: block, so or many block jokes. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: <laughs> there, like there, really is this. The, the idea of a, a lot of the readings that i do of horror movies are indebted to gothic marxism mm-hmm. which is purely in this warm stream tradition of the warm stream particularly through uh isn't a
2: horny thing you just made up <laughs> the warm stream the warm of, marxism. of marxism i've not heard this yeah, i
0: haven't heard the- that i haven't heard that like as a um yeah like as a category but i love it now
1: it's really useful the the cold stream is the is often seen as more economistic it's really what it is is it's about a a sort of a splinter in early 20th century marxist thought that involves a lot of the people that we were just talking about and the warm stream it it tends toward it is rooted in the language of theology is the most important part of it but it also is it has this like um not human as in humanistic that's loaded when it comes to Marxism because there's Marxist humanism. But it has this like um it has this character to it that is fluent in the language of the way that at least the, the way that I grew up as an extremely religious conservative Christian. Like yeah. I, it, it's the language Twinsies. Is, yeah <laughs> right exactly. Like it's yeah, an the, Irish
0: like, Catholic over here.
1: I mean for like yeah. the language uh, that that Ben, that Benjamin was interested in Jewish mysticism and his very close friend was seen as like the chief revivalist of the analysis of cabal and Jewish mysticism, you know, is by no accident and Bloch's obsession with the, um, you know, uh, Win and the, um, like the, 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 the um, theological elements of peasant rebellion and all of this like stuff re- relating to like theological questions or the language of theology um, is incredibly useful for examining culture, but like it's use as an influence on the idea of a Gothic Marxism um, mostly through initially now through, you know, mostly the, the work of a, um, uh, a, a well-known scholar that named the Lickrick guy. Um, but that started, <laughs> we
0: that started, know that guy. Yeah. Friend
1: of the pot he's been on. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, that started through a book written by Margaret Cohen called Profane Illumination. Mm-hmm. Um,
2: Which is available on the Internet Archive.
1: Yes, exactly. You can check it out. I really encourage people to read that um, if you're interested in Marxist ideas as they relate to a lot of the kind of stuff that we were talking about. Um, as they relate to um, horror, especially. um, It really adds that that is the kind of, you know, key driver of the way that I'm trying to think through history is from this kind of gothic Marxist perspective. Um, And Benjamin, relying on Benjamin's presentism, um, which is a very, like, bad word in history um, that I can't apologize for for, for doing. But, like, it, academic historians are, like, constantly looking out for this idea of presentism as, like, a, as negating the authenticity or the authority of their field. Mm. Um, and I say to that,
0: hey. you were never
1: authentic. <laughs> you were never authoritative. Your institution is authoritative. Your institution is perceived as authentic. Rather, you need to speak to people and what people see. And it's, it's ghouls and ghosts and haunted houses, baby.
0: Yeah, fuck it, All yeah. the way down. Yeah, I feel like the warm stream of marxism is for you if like social realism is not your bag. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Like George I'm going to maintain that that's a very not... horny phrase though. <laughs> yeah, it is very horny, but I mean, I gothic wrong marxism wrong. is extremely horny. Mm-hmm, you know. It is. Everything that I'm we gothic. talk about is extremely I horny. I love horny marxism. Yeah, horny marxism, the warm stream. Jump into the warm stream. Get Can into we the be, like, stew. In- with Kyle, yeah. get
2: into the stew. That's right. <laughs> Are we like the pervert Marxists? Yeah, like podcast. Like, we would probably be
0: googled, but that's okay. That's fine. Yeah. Yeah. No, big? I'm.
2: We're. I'm very anti-statist. Um, yeah. You know. Maybe we're the pervert and all all anarchists are perverts. I don't know. The real um,
0: vulgar Marxism is <laughs> <No>. Vulgar. <laughs> um,
2: well I learned a new word today. Um I didn't know about the 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 the, the, the like piss play Marxism.
1: Oh like- my god.
0: <laughs> piss play oh, Marxism. The- <laughs>
1: Honestly, the best place to hear about this stuff on a podcast forum is the podcast uh, Grand Radio Abyss.
2: Ooh. Um, a sick name. Cool. Should uh, we have uh, them
1: on?
0: Yeah, let's have them on. We can talk about something weird.
1: Let's be sickos. Uh, is that their name? Or am I, uh, am I getting...
2: So many Marx- the Marxists are going to be so mad at me for making a, a, a piss joke. No, they aren't they don't have a sense of humor i have their name right i am kidding
0: you aren't friends with the right marxists
2: (laughs) no no i'm friends i'm extremely i'm friends with the extremely correct good marxists only the good marxists all the marxists who aren't my friends are the bad ones oh okay
1: cool i gotta find name. i'll let you go but i gotta find the name of that fucking podcast because it's really good I remember the name of the show, so I got their Twitter <laughs> handle right. Okay. The podcast is called "The Regrettable Century."
0: Ooh. It is okay.
1: they are as they call themselves dialectical pessimists. Ooh. Um, they are a yeah a Marxist salvage pro- pod project podcast. That if you want to learn more about uh, speaking directly to the idea of the warm stream of Marxism, the liquor guy went on. Regrettable Century to talk about Ernst Bloch. And in that episode, he speaks so clearly and directly about it that I think it's the perfect summary. Until his book about Ernst Bloch comes out, it's the perfect primer for people who are interested in that type of thing. Oh, yeah. The podcast in general is very good. Um, um if you ways.
2: could put that in the notes so that I can put it in the, the notes I when, it, I, right. when I when I when I publish it. That would be that would be fun. Exciting. I'll also, Ooh, William Morris's
0: romantic Marxism. All right.
2: I'll also put a book a link to um, the Internet Archive
1: version of Profane Illuminations. Um, the show that I have with the lit guy. That um, is also true. Called Profane Illuminations, plural, was obviously directly inspired um, by that.
0: Kyle's got to get to uh, the get yes, to the babe now
2: that we have now that we have found our things All right. um, Kyle, and we know that Labor Abby is, is waiting Labor she's, Abby? Been oh so good. So good. she's been so good so she's been so good this recording she's been sleeping like an angel okay um, what do you have to say for yourself
0: yeah this has been like <laughs> such a fun wide ranging conversation i love it um as always i'm here to do that (laughs) thank you so much kyle um yeah do you have any other plugs you'd like to do
1: um uh honestly just uh go to go to horror vanguard and listen to the other two episodes i did with them on the other two movies in the blood piece trilogy we talked about 2000 maniacs um which was up on their patreon for a while and is now public And then we did, no, that one was public. And Color Me Blood Red was on Patreon, but they've made it public. Um, So I would encourage anyone to listen to that and our friends over there. Um, And I'm on Twitter. (laughs) You can (laughs) follow me there sometimes. But uh, thank you both for having me. I had such a lovely time. Yeah, it was so fun. I like and respect both of you very, very much. So this is always a pleasure.
0: Aw, ditto. Aw,
2: thank you. Thanks. Yeah, it's always a pleasure to podcast with you, comrade.
0: (laughs) Yes. All right, let's get into the warm stream.